Well, good morning, church. I would invite you um, to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you've not already done so. Um, and uh, I'll give you a, a minute to do that and then keep your Bibles handy um, because really today's outline more or less is going to be the scripture um, that we're actually in. We're just going to kind of walk through it um, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. And as you're turning there, I want to just take a second to kind of remind us where we've been um, from last week. Um, where Paul in chapter three, and Kyle did a great job of just um, laying this out for us, um, gives the qualifications for overseers who are also referred to as elders, pastors, um, and also uh, for deacons, the leadership of the church and what their qualifications are. And then he concludes the passage, um, Paul does, by giving um, really what is the thesis statement for the entire letter that he is writing to Timothy, where he says in verse um, 15 of chapter three, um, that Timothy and all the um, Christians in Ephesus might know how to behave in the household of the living God, which is the church of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And after that, right after he says these things, um, he, he makes this statement. He says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Um, and this um, is something that has um, just come to be something I think that he, he really lays out in this hymn of verse 16 of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And from this, Paul is going to pick up because apparently what has brought his mind when he's talking about the mystery of godliness, apparently something else um, about a false godliness um, comes back around to Paul's mind that the church at Ephesus is dealing with. Um, and so he is going to um, pick up there here in chapter four, which is where we're going to turn our attention to um, right now. Um, chapter four, we're going to read verses one through 10. Um, then I'm going to pray and we're going to, we're going to jump right in. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer." If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Thanks be to God for his word. Will you pray with me? Father, in these next moments, God, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, to the glory of you, our Father, of Christ, um, our redeemer, and of the Spirit, who is our sanctifier as we move 
towards this true godliness that you have set out for us. God, may we do so with faithfulness. I praise things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> so as I said today, our text um, is really gonna serve as the outline, but I also have divided this into, if you're an outline person, you like things broken up, we've divided, I've divided it up into three sections. Um, and the first of those sections is, is right here. It's, it's apostasy and asceticism. So I'm, don't worry, I'm gonna get into the big words there and everything. But this first section that we look at um, deals with something that for a, a term really that has for years been very rich in meaning in the Christian church, but is not as common today. And that's that word apostasy that you see there in the first part of our outline. And this term really, um, again, has been used for centuries in the Christian church to describe the teaching and belief that has abandoned the historical doctrine of the apostles and what was eventually the canonized scriptures that we have today of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Something that departs from those is considered to be apostasy, which is really just another word, if you want to get down to it, for heresy. Um, they're the same thing. They're one and the same. Um, it is diverting from what is true, what is doctrinally sound, um, to use another term that Paul uses. And it leads people away from this true historical gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and therefore it is to be rejected. And as we've seen, Paul has already referred to this earlier in the letter of Timothy. Um, and, and here in chapter four, he's gonna return to this idea. He talks about some in chapter one and earlier, but he really returns to it here in chapter four because the, the sad reality is that apostasy, apostasy has occurred and is still occurring um, there at the church in Ephesus. And so he begins by saying, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. And so as in previous verses, Paul is not just giving his opinion. Um, he's not just saying, I'm pretty sure this is gonna happen. I think it's what's going on here. He says, no, the spirit expressly or specifically, clearly, undeniably says this will happen. And this may be something that has been specifically by divine revelation been given to Paul, um, or it could just be that he is referring to the testimony of the Old Testament of what is going to happen in the later days um, after Christ has come, after the Messiah has come. Um, this term, this idea of later times or latter days or any of those is, is of course seen in many places in the New Testament. And it, all, it refers essentially to the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. These, and therefore we are living in still the later days or the latter times. And so in this, Paul's main focus here though is not the times, but actually what is going to be happening in these times. And in this case, it is that some will depart from the faith. That is apostasy, heresy. And Paul may have in mind Jesus' own words in Matthew 24 here, where Jesus tells his disciples that in latter times, there will be false prophets. There will be false Christs who arise and they will seek in this time to lead astray even the elect believers. That is, that is gonna be their goal. They are going to happen. Jesus said this. Um, and of course, we see this is not just a novel thing in Ephesus either. Um, in 1 John chapter two, the church that John is writing to, he says um, in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Um, but Paul probably had something even more particular in mind um, here regarding this group of, of believers in Ephesus um, when he wrote this. Something 
that he had specifically warned the elders of Ephesus in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 30. Uh, He says, and from among your own selves, again, talking to the leadership of the church, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So while Paul is undoubtedly saddened by this, um, that, that people are departing from the faith, that people who have been part of the church are diverting from what is true doctrine and in some ways even walking away from the church, um, he's not surprised by it. Again, it's something that the Spirit has specifically said would happen. It's something that Jesus spoke of. And so he's not taken back by it, but he then goes on to describe how it has happened, how these people have been led astray. If we keep on in verse one, um, he says, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Um, the idea here is that those who have wandered off, they have actually given themselves over to this, um, this idea of devoting themselves. They've given themselves over to something that is false. And Paul doesn't mince words here. He says they're deceitful, but it's specifically their origin is demonic. Like this isn't just like some innocent thing that is, that's popped up. It is demonic at its core. Um, and it's important to note that Paul is also using the plural here, spirits, teachings. In other words, they are contrary. All these scattered things that are going off in different directions, contrary from the one singular true gospel, which is sound, the sound doctrine of Jesus Christ that he had mentioned in chapter one, verse 10. False gospels take countless forms, countless forms, all of which are deceitful teachings of demons, while the true gospel stands alone as objective truth determined and declared by the one true God himself and his word. Something that all false teachings have in common though is this. They all distort God's word in one way or another. Every false teaching will distort the word of God in one way or another. And we've seen this ever since the beginning of time when the serpent comes and deceives Eve and says, did God really say? And then you will not surely die. God doesn't know what he's talking about. Can you really trust that? Unlike the Lord, though, who creates from nothing, <laughs> Satan, his demons are limited to the same old tactics, tactics that are just repackaged for the times. Um, C.S. Lewis actually said that evil is only spoiled goodness. He says this in Mere Christianity. He talks about how evil can't exist on its own. It can only take what is true, what is good, and twist it for its own ends. This is what we see every time we see a false teaching. It takes what is the good word of God and it twists it in an evil and deceitful way. So there's, there's nothing, though, innocent, again, about this spiritual origin of these false teachings. But Paul says there's also nothing innocent about their human origin. He continues and goes on to say, as they come through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And so while it is likely that false teachers were in some cases being paid and brought into these churches that met in the houses um, by some of the wealthier members that they were being brought in from the outside, Paul has already kind of laid out for us the very likely um, circumstance that many of these false teachers have come up through the ranks of the church and are now in even leadership positions in the church. 
Um, that's why he says they are liars. Um, they, they know, or they should know at least, the truth. Um, and this is supported in many ways. One, in the fact that, again, Paul told Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 20, these elders, that this would happen. We knew that these, these, these wolves would rise up among the, the believers in, in order to lead them astray. But then Paul also mentions two men um, back in chapter one, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who many scholars believe, most scholars actually, believe are two people who were in leadership within the church and Paul is now excommunicated because they were leading away the church from true doctrine. So Paul's excommunicated them and removed them. And chapter three, which comes right before this, supports this idea even more because he has just detailed the qualifications for leadership in the church, presumably for the sake of replacing those who have gone astray and then leading others astray as well. And so this all supports this idea that Paul isn't just talking about people who have come in from the outside, but who have risen up from within the church. This is something that the church has to be on its guard about. Um, and so this best explains why Paul refers to these individuals as liars whose consciences are seared. Um, the word in the ESV that's, that's translated here, insincerity, is elsewhere translated hypocrisy. Um, they're, they're hypocrites. They, they should know the truth, but they're teaching what is false. Um, these men are hypocritical, lying heretics who have arisen again with, from within the church with consciences that are now numb to the truth. Um, it's a very dangerous thing that Paul is describing. Their, their consciences no longer are able to distinguish what is rightly from God and what is not. They're numb. And now they are also leading others astray in the same way. And here's the thing. Paul is implying they should know better. They're liars who are conscious of their They should know better. And yet they, they continue in this way. Yet again, Paul isn't surprised um, but this, and, and this is not an isolated incident in the church of Ephesus. It actually is something that Paul addresses in the church with Corinth too. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15, Paul says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, but their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul's words are sharp and pointed here. Uh, and that's because these false teachers, should ha they have no excuse for what they're doing. They're hypocrites in that they know exactly the wrong they're doing. John Stott puts it very, very simply when he says, hypocrisy is a deliberate pretense and a lie is a deliberate falsehood. Hypocrisy is a deliberate pretense and a lie is a deliberate falsehood. There is deliberation, there is intentionality behind these false teachings and that's why Paul is so harsh in his condemnation of it. Um, but then Paul goes on to say that these false teachers, he, he describes a little bit of what they're, they're teaching here and he says that who forbid marriage, this is verse three, and require abstinence from foods. One of the problems with wrong belief, as we've already seen in the book of 1 Timothy and really throughout scripture, is that wrong belief always leads to wrong behavior. Every time. Wrong belief will lead to wrong behavior. Mysticism, Gnosticism, legalism, asceticism, all of these things that they saw in the early church and we still see today, all these wrong beliefs will result in various wrong behaviors. It's just gonna happen. 
Um, the one view that happens to be here that is wrong is the idea of asceticism. Again, to go along with our, um, our outline, which is really just a form of self, of really severe self-discipline that involved um, avoidance, in this case, of eating certain things. But just it's a, it's a things that are seen to be as wrong and overly wrongly indulgent. Um, that's, that's the idea of this asceticism that Paul is describing here. Uh, and the other problem with it, though, is that it is, it is the thing that is being put forth as true godliness and righteousness, um, which, of course, is contrary to the gospel, which we'll get into more here in a second. So Paul's concern, though, is that these false teachers are leading people to believe that they can achieve righteousness and godliness, not by faith in Jesus Christ, but by maybe some faith in him plus these other things. You need to abstain from these foods. You need to avoid marriage. Marriage, which is always in the, in the ancient world, very closely tied with sexual interaction, is something that sex is something to be put away and, and, and avoided um, in some thought of asceticism. And again, here, Paul is ultimately saying that this is just works-based salvation. As in other places like in Galatians and others, works-based salvation is no salvation whatsoever. It's condemnation. And again, this is not something Paul hasn't addressed otherwise, um, specifically with the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Yet here in the context of 1 Timothy, we find the exact opposite, right? The false teachers and those who fell astray by following them are boasting in their ascetic works rather than boasting in Christ who offers the only means of salvation, which is by grace through faith in him. Believing and teaching that some form of works is necessary for salvation is an outright denial of the sufficiency of Christ's substitutionary death by his blood. It's also something that undermines the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Um, in the same way that Paul actually addresses with the Galatians, he says in Galatians 3.3, 3, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? But always this an outright denial of Christ's sufficiency and of the Spirit's sanctifying work. It is also, moreover, in the abstaining from these good things that God has given, it is a slap in the face of the creator who has given them as good provision. It is an overall affront to the triune God in every way. And this is why Paul, again, is so harsh in condemning it. Which brings us to the beginning of then Paul's rebuttal to this, which also happens to be the second part of our outline today. So picking up in the second half of verse three, um, we see that Paul's gonna say that marriage and food are things that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, Paul, let me real quickly say, Paul is not gonna go through here in these next couple of verses and say that there's nothing, there, that being a vegetarian is wrong or being single is wrong. But a denial of the good things that God has given because it, just because it may be someone else's calling, if someone else is called to marriage while you are called to singleness, doesn't mean that marriage should be considered to be bad. The same way, just because you may in your lifestyle choose to, for health reasons, not eat meat, does not mean that the one who 
does eat meat is condemned. Paul deals with this elsewhere, but here he's gonna get into this. And the phrase that we really need to pay attention to here is by those who believe and know the truth. First off, we should assume that Paul has, again, these false teachers in mind, right? Um, here, since at least, um, at least some of them very likely were among the leadership of the Ephesian church. So um, what we're seeing here is a, really an indictment against them um, because the truth has been made known to them since the time when Paul planted the church um, and they at least claim to believe this truth. But here they are now rejecting it in their actions. So Paul's point is that anyone who believes and knows the truth should respond to these things to God with thanksgiving when they receive them. Um, but what truth specifically is Paul having in mind here? I'm glad you asked. He goes on to tell us in verses four and five, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Paul certainly has in mind here Genesis chapter one, uh, where God declares to the first man and the first woman that he has put all of creation under their rule to have dominion over it um, and that it might provide for them all of their needs. Um, chapter one of Genesis then, of course, concludes with this proclamation, God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Uh, and likewise, Genesis 2.24 is a de declaration of God's good gift of marriage um, to men and to women in that he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Even after the fall, marriage and food are upheld as good gifts for God, from God to all of humanity. Um, the cultural mandate of Genesis 1, 26 through 29 is actually then reiterated in Genesis 9 after the flood. And in Genesis 9, 3, um, it actually, God is extending his provision of creation to humanity when it says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Um, so meat has now been involved as part of God's good provision to his people that are his creation. And Jesus likewise declares all food to be acceptable or clean in Mark 7 when he says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, Mark says, he declared all foods clean. And Jesus upheld the sanctity of marriage as well as he performed his first miracle at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And then he also spoke in Matthew 19 of the goodness of marriage that God has given to people um, and Paul certainly had a high, high view of marriage, um, which again, he has already communicated to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter five, when he says that it is to be a reflection of Christ's relationship with his church. So these things, the point here um, that Paul, Paul is pointing out, the things he's pointing out is that if these things are true, there's no need to reject any of God's creation that he has so abundantly provided for us. Um, rather that those who believe and know the truth should respond with thanksgiving. See, enjoying God's provision ought to fill our hearts and our mouths with thanksgiving to our creator, which is what Paul is suggesting here in verse five as we continue on. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Some English versions translate um, this made holy as sanctified. 
um, set apart is the idea, which I think kind of gets closer to what really Paul is communicating. And so what Paul is saying is that properly considering the source, properly considering the source of things like marriage and food resort in properly enjoying their substance. Properly considering and understanding their source will help us to properly enjoy their substance. Recognizing that something comes from God sets it apart as something sacred and ought to produce a sense of wonder and gratitude within us. David captures this beautifully in Psalm 145 when he writes, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. All good gifts, James says, comes from the Father. He says, do not be deceived, James 1.16. My beloved brothers, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is what Jesus spoke of in places like Matthew 6, where he's told people, don't worry about these basic things that you have need of. Your father knows you need them. Don't worry about them, but seek his kingdom and his righteousness and they will all be perfectly added to you by your good father. And this may actually have been what Paul had in mind when he was writing these things. Uh, And he segues into this in verse six. We're gonna move into the, the last part of our outline for today, training and toiling. Because Paul writes then, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus, of Christ Jesus. Um, So Paul is, after explaining what's going on and how it should be dealt with, Paul's gonna turn his attention to Timothy to give him some specific instruction to carry out in the church. And here, um, verses one through five is what Paul is talking about. Um, Of course, that he needs to apply, but really, all we could say of 1 Timothy up to this point is what is supposed to be put before the brothers. And just to make a note, um, this probably, Paul is saying, put before the brothers. He, he probably has a special intention in mind towards the male leadership of the church, but he is probably more likely saying when he says brothers here, meaning brothers and sisters, which is a very common way for that adelphois in the Greek to be, to be translated, so that he's saying, put this in front of the whole congregation. This is something that everyone in the congregation needs to be aware of. Um, And so Paul is going to encourage Timothy that in doing so, he will prove himself to be a good servant of of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. Um, Later in 4.12, Paul tells Timothy not to let anyone look down on him because of his youth, but he is to set an example for the believers. So what Paul probably has in mind here is the fact that Timothy is gonna get pushed back from this. Again, if the leadership in the church who are among the most wealthy, the most elite, and the most influential in the church are where this heresy is rising up, Paul is probably gonna face some pushback and some opposition. I'm sorry, Timothy is probably gonna face some pushback and opposition. And Paul wants him to know, look, ignore the pushback. No matter what it is, know that in doing this, you are proving yourself to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. He's giving apostolic assurance to his apprentice here um, that I think Timothy was probably very grateful for. Um, He goes on to say, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Um, Unlike the false teachings of the heretics um, that are going out there, Timothy is to continue on to stay the course in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that he has followed up to this point. Stay the course 
This brings to mind Jesus' teaching in John 15 of abiding in his word because as he tells his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. So abide in me and let me abide in you. Um, Paul may have actually had this also in mind as he teaches this. Um, And it's kind of that idea is reinforced in this idea of what the ESV renders trained here with the sense of being instructed, uh, to be instructed in, to be trained in that way. But here's the thing. Later, here in a few verses, Paul's gonna use this word train again, which is a different Greek word. And so Paul probably has some nuanced idea here in mind for this, this idea of training, which is more along the lines of nourish, which is what that actual stem of that Greek word he uses in verse six actually means, to nourish, to be fed by the good doctrine, the words of faith and good doctrine that he has followed. And so this is further constrained, um, really strengthened when we consider how he has just condemned the ascetic practice of abstaining from food. So Paul's drawing this dichotomy here. Don't abstain from food that gives physical nourishment. And in the same way, nourish yourself, which he's gonna talk about here in training in godliness, how we nourish ourselves with the good words from God. Well, here we should understand Paul saying that the nourishment in good doctrine from the word of God is the type of spiritual diet that Timothy and indeed all believers need on a daily basis. Um, but Paul then goes on, of course, quickly to give the negative side of this instruction. Well, in verse seven, when he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So very quickly here, um, we could really rephrase this as keep the main thing, the main thing, Timothy, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't get caught up. Don't waste your time in the weeds. Don't go after these things that these heretics are going after. Instead of getting swept up in speculation, commit yourself to the stewardship that has been entrusted to you. And while this is here addressed directly to Timothy, I think it carries weight um, for all believers as well. We don't need to get swept up in speculation about things that are not sure. We need to focus specifically on what God's word has already said and what remains true for all the ages. So Paul goes on then to say, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. Paul's point here is clear. Bodily training, like what an athlete devotes him or herself to, is of some value because it has a goal in mind and it brings health and vitality to the physical life. Likewise, and even more so, training in godliness is a value because its goal and its reward are far greater. The life and vitality that it brings, the health spiritually it brings, is far greater reward. The goal of physical bodily training is to grow stronger, to refine and make skills keener, um, to be stretched so that injury is avoided, and to develop endurance, also that a prize may be achieved. So also believers are to grow stronger spiritually, to develop and refine our spiritual gifts, to be stretched into greater sanctification, and to develop endurance in the midst of suffering and hardship, also that we may one day hear the words of our God, well done, good and faithful servant. And this is, of course, not Paul's only analogy of this. He, he speaks of this in Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The believer's call to obedience and endurance in this life is an anticipation of the call into God's very presence. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, Paul says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Something to note very quickly here is Paul is, is not here talking about asceticism. See, the problem with asceticism, it says, there is the problem. But what Paul is talking about is he says, here is the problem. My body, my flesh needs discipline. God's, God's provision is good. It's my misuse of it that makes it evil. The problem is not with God's good creation. The problem is in our own sinful hearts that turn away from God. And Paul says it needs discipline, which is why he says here, train for godliness. Uh, and Timothy and the church in Ephesus need to understand the value and the vital nature of embracing this. This is what he wants to do when he says in verse nine, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, unlike the silly myths put forth by the false teachers, they're not even worth entertaining. Paul's statements about being nourished in good doctrine and trained in godliness should be fully and confidently embraced and applied in the lives of believers. Paul is in effect saying, no one will regret devoting their life to training in godliness because of the greatness of what it leads to. Paul expresses this more fully in the final verse um, today, and then we're gonna apply this to our lives. He says, for to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Just as devotion to false teaching has a destination of destruction, so also devotion to true godliness has a destination of glorification. While the false teaching de deceptively says that salvation can be earned by works, toiling and striving in godliness is not a means of attaining salvation, but an execution of obedience with full assurance that salvation has already been granted through faith in Jesus Christ. The Christian hope must never be set on our works. Not, no matter how good they may seem in our sight, um, by our limited and often twisted understanding, works cannot save us. The Christian hope from all eternity past and for all eternity future is this. It is to be set on the full and final work of the living God, Paul says, who for our sakes was the dying God on the cross who then resurrected to live again and give us the hope of resurrection. This is the gospel. No works can achieve this except for the final work of Christ on the cross and out of the tomb. As we look at this, this is where we find our hope. That the resurrected king has triumphed over sin and death and will one day also resurrect us to be in his presence bodily forever and ever. 
The list, this living God is the savior of all people, Paul says, as he's already laid out in chapter two, verses three through six. This is good and it's pleasing inside of our God, of our savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Christ Jesus is the hope, the only hope for the world. His arms on the cross testify that he beckons sinners to come to him and live. As John famously penned in John three sixteen through 18, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here at the end of verse 10 in 1 Timothy 4, Paul's not putting forth some type of, of universe, savior of universalism. Um, he is putting forth a universal savior though. This is an important distinction we must make that Jesus is simultaneously the fully inclusive and the unwaveringly exclusive savior of the world. All people, regardless of class, ethnicity, background, or anything else, can come to him and find forgiveness and redemption of sin. And Paul perhaps knew this better than anyone. Perhaps the greatest example of this. But Christ alone offers salvation. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and no one comes to the Father but by grace through faith in him, in his irrevocable call that is extended by the Spirit. And while it is still called today, you, you can come to him and find forgiveness, redemption, transformation, and reconciliation to the God who created you for his glory. So as we conclude, I want to apply this to us today. What does this text have to say to us? Number one, we must detect and correct heresy. It's not an option. It's not an option. Just as asceticism and mysticism and Gnosticism were forms of apostasy that existed in the early first and second century church and since then, today there are still plenty, plenty of heretical isms that have come into the church and pose just as much of a danger and threat to it. We have to be on our guard. Like Paul, we shouldn't be saddened, or we should be saddened by it, but we shouldn't be shocked or surprised. We should expect the enemy to try to sabotage the church from within. We should expect it. In some cases, the American church has slowly and subtly drifted over time towards things such as legalism and traditionalism, much like a frog that's being, having the heat turned gradually up on it in the frying pan, not realizing that it's being boiled alive. This has happened in the American church for sure. But today, in many cases, um, churches have deliberately flung their doors open and invited in heresy. The heresy of progressivism and consumerism are great examples of that as we look at churches across the nation. And the point that these churches are now teaching things that are indistinguishable from a world around us that does not know Christ. This is something to be saddened by, but not unfortunately shocked by. At the end of the day, though, here's the thing. Accidental drifting or intentional departure have the same destructive destination. We must be on our guard. Salvation isn't found in any ism, not conservatism or progressivism. 
not consumerism or individualism, not capitalism or Marxism, but is found solely in the person and work of Christ Jesus. We must stand firm in this church. And the gospel is never Jesus plus something. Jesus does not need our help. (laughs) He, He allows us graciously to serve him in his work to come alongside as co-laborers in this. If Jesus needed our help to save, he would be an insufficient savior. He doesn't need our help to save. He is able to save to the uttermost. Praise God, he is mighty to save those who draw near to him by faith. The church must have an eye to false teaching. We have to be able to spot it. This is, of course, a a responsibility that lies with church leadership, but it is a responsibility, I believe, of every single Christian. We must be on our guard and on the lookout for church, uh, for for heresy that comes into the church. And when we see it, we have to have a resolve to condemn it for what it is, that's demonic at its source. And then we have to have a resolve to correct it with the word of truth in the scriptures. This is our foundation and what we stand on, church. But how? How do we do this? The secret service is usually something that people think of about how they protect the president and important officials. That's usually what's thought of when we talk about the secret service. But a lesser known fact about them is they were actually an agency that was founded to identify counterfeit currency. And the way that they would train their agents to identify this counterfeit currency is they made them become so intimately familiar with the authentic that they could spot a fake from a mile away. Church, this is what we're called to. We should be so committed to being so intimately familiar with the truth of God's word that we spot the falsehood from a mile away. This is what we are called to if we're going to do this. The church today is plagued with heresy because too many Christians don't have a clue what's in their Bible. There's a a famous saying from Charles Spurgeon. He said, many of you, there's so much dust on your Bible and your shelf at your home that you you could write the word condemnation with your finger. May this not be true about Alberta Baptist Church. May we know the word so that we can spot the lie. We should be so familiar with with what the Bible says that we can immediately spot the fake. This is, of course, a task that the church leadership, again, has to take lead in, but it is a responsibility for us all to participate in. So first, we must detect and correct heresy. Second, we should always give thanks to God for his good provision. A grateful heart is a heart that is pleasing God. God loves a cheerful, cheerful giver, but also a cheerful receiver. We should constantly be drawn back to God's goodness. I love what Matt Chandler says in his book, The Explicit Gospel, when he says, when I take a bite of a fajita, it should remind me when it, those, that, that the amazing flavor hits my taste buds of the goodness of God. God could have made food taste like cardboard, y'all. It's fuel. But in his grace, he has made it taste wonderfully, marvelously, God's creation is good. And every time we enjoy it, our hearts should have something holy happen in them that points us back to the goodness of our creator. We should always give thanks to God for his good provision. Romans 8.32 is perhaps the best reminder of this where we're given the reminder that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
The provision of Christ is the ultimate example of God's provision. Anything less than that, God, we can trust, will provide as well. If he did not withhold the greatest, he will not withhold the least from us. It is good, and we should thank him for it. Thirdly, we need to be constantly nourished by the truth of God's word. This goes back to what we said about, the, about how we are able to spot the lie and spot the heresy. But during his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, Jesus rebuked Satan from Deuteronomy 8.3 by saying that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need to see God's word as nourishment that we cannot live without. If we don't, we will be led astray because the world can produce some things that are very enticing, just as the very first deception from the serpent came to them. He would draw us away from the truth of God's word, though. Success in living in obedience to God is impossible without being sustained by the word of God. We will be, we will be like a ship that's tossed about in every way by every wind of false doctrine if we are not anchored to the true doctrine of the Bible. We never outgrow our need for God's word and it never ceases to nourish our souls. Fourthly, we should train ourselves for godliness because it has eternal impact. So we, we know that training for godliness has eternal impact, of course, we just said that, but how do we train for godliness? Um, this is something that I think is very cru- crucial. We don't need to just pass over, oh, we know what training for godliness is. Of course, it is the spiritual disciplines of reading our Bible and prayer. Um, those are indispensable. But when asked about these, Charles Spurgeon actually also said, he said, which is more important? They asked him, um, reading your Bible or prayer? He said, which is more important, breathing in or breathing out? (laughs) They're indispensable, church. We must have them both. But the training isn't complete if we just know what the Bible says. We must also apply it to our lives, which is much more difficult. The training isn't complete if we just pray and then move on. We must allow prayer to bend our will to God's and lead us to trust him no matter what the outcome is. But training for godliness goes beyond just Bible reading and prayer. It also includes gathering for fellowship with other believers, making disciples who go out and make more disciples, using our spiritual gifts for the upbuilding of the church and worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth. Training for godliness is a daily, moment-by-moment process that we must be committed to above all other things. Training for godliness requires doing what Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. This is training in godliness. It is difficult, but oh, it is so worthy. It is so worth it because its benefits are for this life and the life to come as we lay up treasures in heaven that will never grow old or be taken away from us. But lastly, we must toil and strive to the end because salvation is at stake. The great commission to go and make disciples and the great commandment to love God with all, our, all we are and all we have and to love our neighbor as ourself is the unified task that has been given to every single Christian. This task demands perseverance, but praise God that perseverance is more than adequately supplied by the living God in whom we place our hope. He is the hope for all the world and we are to be busy at work proclaiming and, um, and sharing in the truth of that hope. There's no greater story to be told than the true story of the scriptures. There's nothing better offered. 
There's no better news than that Christ, should, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And there's no greater commission than go and tell the world. And of course, there is no better thing to devote our lives to than training for godliness. So if you've never come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and the promise of eternal life, I plead with you today to come find a savior waiting with open arms to receive you and to redeem you. But if you've already are a born again follower of Jesus, I have a different plead for you. Will you join me today in committing yourself to training for godliness, that the church might remain pure and might remain thankful to our God and that souls might be saved by our witness to the glory of Christ Jesus. That is my plea with you today. So as we conclude, if you'd like someone to pray, we're gonna have people up here that would be happy to pray with you. If you know that today is the day you need to come, that you've been chasing after a false doctrine that's not anchored in Christ Jesus, come to the Savior. He is waiting. And if you need to come and you need to do work um, in prayer with the Lord to commit yourself to training in godliness more than you train in other ways of your life. Come, he wants to hear from you. He beckons you come. So as we do, as I pray, let God lead you as he is today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you how it purifies, how it remains true and constant in all things, how it does not change, is not shifting but God, it provides us everything we need to be trained for godliness. Lord, as, as you lead us today, God, may we be faithful to respond. God, may we not look to um, the things that this world offers as hope, but God, may we look to you because you are the hope. God, may we be thankful for that. And God, may we pursue with reckless abandon your hope your mission for our lives, which is to go and tell the world that you are the Savior who is mighty, able to save. God, would you help us to be compelled to devote ourselves to this? God, would you draw people to faith in yourself through our witness, through our proclamation, through the lives that we live to the glory of Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen.